Thank you all for coming. I'm Mukulika Banerjee. I teach at the Anthropology Department at LSE, and uh, I'm the first director of the South Asia Center, which will launch on Monday, the 1st of June. So this is a very auspicious anticipation of, of what is to be. But of course, we've uh, invited Amitav Ghosh on behalf of the Institute for Global Affairs, which has been set up at LSE. Um, and we cannot really, we couldn't think of a better person to mark the launch and the start of the working of the Institute of Global Affairs, because in many ways, the, what the Institute proposes to do, the IGA, is really to highlight unique perspectives from particular parts of the world, but also explore synergies across these regions. And Amita's work, work is such an exemplar of this. Now, I should say that I am also delighted to be introducing Amitav Ghosh because I owe my early, very early training in anthropology, which became my profession and vocation, to Amitav as a teacher. So my very early steps in anthropology coincided with his, with his final steps in professional anthropology. But of course, uh, the perspectives have remained. So it's a particular personal pleasure, if you'll allow me that. Um, now, as we know, I'm not going to go over the, the biography of Amitav Ghosh. If you've braved the rain and a short lunch hour to be here, you know why you're here and you know about Amitav Ghosh. But for those of you who have come to explore his ideas and writing, um, I should say that the reason why I said he's such a perfect exemplar for the IGA is because he lives between India and the US um, and has written about Egypt, um, Mauritius, Bihar, Bengal, Burma, uh, China, and all the oceans and flows between these places. So uh, it really is about global affairs in so many ways, but not just in space, but also in time. And his training as a historian and as an anthropologist informs this writing. He has the historian's eye for detail and undiscovered archive, and the anthropologist's empathy for the voice of the other. And uh, it's those voices that all of us as re readers have been so privileged to encounter and we've begun to care for these characters in a very deep way, so much so that most of us who are here, I think, are um, very excited about the third part of the trilogy, right? I see lots of nods in the audience because we want to know what happened to those people. We want to uh, see how the story ends, or at least this part of the story ends, and you've said at the end of, of the book, which I haven't read, I admit, uh, yet, um, is only the beginning. Uh, but it is 10 years of writing and work, and we've enjoyed it immensely. And today, we will have Amitav read uh, from the new volume, and then we'll pl allow plenty of time for Q&A at the end. Uh, I will chair that at the end. And I tell you now, please, I request you to keep your questions short so we can get as many of you in as, as possible. Now, two things to remember. There is a book signing at the end. Um, please get your copies outside, and Amitav will stay here, and you can um, come in here and have your copies signed if you'd like. And the hashtag for this event is LSE Ghosh. Uh, please do tweet if you are so inclined. But I also wanted to warmly thank what we take for granted, the publishers who bring these books to us, and also to LSE Public Events who do these 
events so beautifully and so well managed in such a well managed way that none of us have to really worry about any of them. So special thanks to Louise Gaskell and her team. So now we are going to go straight into a very short four-minute film, uh, which is going to be screened first, and then Amitabh will do his readings. So welcome again and enjoy. one of the world's busiest ports and Kolkata or Calcutta as the city was then known was the capital of Britain's empire in India and the hub of British military power in Asia. Calcutta is the point of departure for many of the voyages of the Ibis trilogy. The city was then as it is now a place of extreme contrasts. Some wealthy merchants built houses so opulent that Calcutta was known as the city of palaces in the 19th century. But the poor and destitute also flocked to the city in great numbers to seek a meagre living. During the years of the Raj, the British launched many wars, large and small, from Calcutta. My new novel, Flood of Fire, is about a war that has disappeared into the furthest recesses of memory in Britain and in India. The first opium war of 1840-42, which was instrumental in shaping the world as we know it today. Of Calcutta's exports, the most important was opium. And the greatest beneficiary of the trade was Britain's East India Company. In Bengal, the company enjoyed a complete monopoly in the production and marketing of the drug, which it used to finance its enormously lucrative trade with China. The building in which the East India Company usually held its opium auctions was probably at this location. in opium futures, where vast fortunes were made and unmade in a single day, was in a lane like this one. The chief market for the East India Company's opium was China, which meant that a large fleet of ships shuttled constantly between Calcutta and Guangzhou, or Canton as it was known to Europeans. This connection brought many Chinese sailors, traders, and artisans to Calcutta. And by the late 18th century, there was a thriving Chinese quarter in the city. In today's Kolkata, the Chinese community has dwindled to a couple of thousand residents. Yet traces of its past prosperity can still be seen in its temples and meeting places. The Ibis trilogy begins in the opium fields of Bihar, 
and follows the migration of indentured workers to British colonies across the world. In this book, several characters from CF Poppies, Zachary Reed, a young American sailor, Neil Ratan Haldar, the former Raja of Raskhali, and Jodhu, a young Muslim boatman, cross paths with Havildar Kesri Singh, who is one of the 4,000 soldiers who traveled to China to fight in the first opening. From the other end of the main deck, Kesri drank in the sights of the receding city, the temples, the houses, the trees, as if he were seeing them for the last time. As the city slipped past, a strange, cold feeling crept through him, and he realized with a shock that deep in his heart he too had come to believe that he would never see his homeland again. One of the things I wanted to convey when I started writing the Ibis trilogy was an aspect of Indian life in which stories and shared histories and memories connect generations over periods of decades and centuries. That's been the texture of my life. Knitting together generations through their shared stories, the Ibis trilogy links the destinies of Calcutta and Guangzhou, India and China, a history of mutual destruction from which they are only now beginning to emerge. Thank you, Mukulika, for that very for that very generous introduction. I have to tell you that uh, Mukulika, even even back then, and I'm talking about 1986, right, uh, was clearly destined for great things. <laughs> she was uh, one of the most brilliant uh, students anyone had taught. So it's 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 wonderful to see her here, and wonderful to be introduced by her. So uh, uh, the point of that film is that uh, I don't have to explain to you what the book is about <laughs> uh, because, uh, the, uh, you know, the film does it. Now, <clears throat> uh, I'm going to read to you uh, a few little, uh, little excerpts from the book. Uh, one part, uh, there is, uh, you know, the book follows uh, several sort of threads, uh, you know, several characters uh, you know, through this period, 1840 to 42. One of the characters is uh, someone who's figured uh, in, all, in all the books in the Ibis trilogy. His name is Neil Ratan Haldar. And uh, those who've read uh, River of Smoke will remember that Neil ended up uh, in China, in Canton, with, uh, 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 you know, as a part, he was part of the entourage of the uh, Parsi opium merchant, Behram Modi. Uh, Neil actually stays on uh, in southern China. You know, he can't return to India because he was a convict and so on. And uh, in the end, uh, Neil ends up uh, uh, in a very interesting place, which is, actually, uh, which, which is actually taken from history, which is the translation bureau that was formed by Commissioner Lin. Those of you who uh, know this history will know that Commissioner Lin was the governor uh, of uh, Guangdong province. Uh, in the period of the Opium War, he actually set in motion the chain of events that led to the Opium War by trying to ban uh, the smuggling of opium, you know, which had become a huge sort of public health problem 
uh, in China. Uh, uh, in British sources, uh, Commissioner Lin is always depicted as a madman, as a tyrant, a monster, and so on and so forth. He was actually uh, a really amazing person. He was a, a Mandarin in the great tradition of Chinese uh, bureaucrats, absolutely incorruptible, uh, deeply learned, very, uh, very uh, spiritual. Uh, he composed poetry. Just before the main battles, he would go to a, a temple and write poems and so on. A, a really interesting man, also a very far-sighted man, because he did found, uh, uh, you know, he did create this circle of very, very interesting translators. You know, uh, they were, uh, one of them was actually half Bengali. And uh, uh, one of them, uh, William Botelho, was actually the first uh, Chinese to be uh, educated in, uh, in America. So he put together a very, very interesting group of people who were very actively engaging with European, uh, with European literature, European science, European uh, uh, thought. And he himself was constantly quoting European law, uh, you know, back to the British. Uh, anyway, so uh, he ends up, uh, uh, Neil has a friend uh, whose, uh, whose English name, he's Chinese, but his English name is Compton. And actually, he too is taken from a real source. I found a, a letter in the Greenwich Maritime Museum about this guy Compton. Uh, he had grown up as a, uh, you know, he'd grown up uh, uh, working as a comprador, you know, so he became very fluent in English. <coughs> and Compton also works in the, uh, in the Translation Bureau. Nowadays, Compton's fret fretfulness, uh, this is a set of excerpts of Neil's diaries, you know, which he keeps in this period. Nowadays, Compton's fretfulness bubbles over quite often. In the past, his attitude towards translation was fairly matter-of-fact. But now it is as if language itself had become a battleground with words serving as weapons. He sometimes explodes with indignation while reading British translations of, offic of official Chinese documents. Look, Anil, look. Look how they've changed the meaning of what was said. He disputes everything, even the way the English use the word China. There is no similar term in Chinese, he says. The English have borrowed it from Sanskrit and Pali. The Chinese use a different expression, which is mistakenly represented in English as Middle Kingdom. He says that it is better translated as the Central States. I suppose it is the equivalent of our Indian Madhya Desha. What makes Compton angriest is when the Chinese character Yi is translated as barbarian. He says that this character has always been used to refer to people who are not from the central states. What it means, in other words, is foreigner. Apparently, this was not disputed until recently. Americans and Englishmen were quite content to translate E as foreigner. But of late, some of their translators have begun to insist that E means barbarian. It has repeatedly been pointed out to them that the word has been applied to many revered and famous people in China even to the present ruling, uh, ruling dynasty. But the English translators contend that they know better. Some of these translators are notorious opium smugglers. They are clearly twisting the Chinese language in order to make trouble. Since Captain Elliot and his superiors know no Chinese, they accept whatever the translators tell them. They've come to believe that the word yi is indeed intended as an insult. Now they have turned this into a major grievance. This drives Compton to despair. How can they pretend to know, Anil? How can they claim to know that the picture they see when they say barbarian is the same that we say when we say ye? It's all a pack of lies. Thinking about this, I realize that I too would protest 
If Sanskrit or Bangla words like Yavana or Juban were translated as barbarian, I think Compton is right when he says that the reason the English use this word is because it is they who think of us as barbarians. They want war, so they're looking for excuses, and even a word will do. Uh, the next bit I'm going to read to you is uh, another strand of this uh, story. Some of you, those of you who've read uh, the earlier books uh, will remember Zachary Reed. He's a young American sailor. Uh, he, end, uh, he finds himself in Calcutta. He's destitute. He's been, uh, he's had, he's been put in prison for a while. Uh, and finally, he has, to, uh, he has to try and earn some money. So he becomes, he was originally a carpenter. So uh, he takes a job as a carpenter trying to, uh, trying to repair uh, a barge for a uh, bajaro, which is a kind of houseboat, uh, uh, which belongs to someone called Mr. Burnham. Mr. Burnham was the, op was the big opium trader um, in the first and second books, as you, um, as you will understand. And uh, 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 Zachary ends up in a kind of relationship with Mrs. Burnham. Mrs. Burnham is much older than him, but uh, they end up uh, you know, having a relationship. And this is about their relationship. Mrs. Burnham delighted in tantalizing Zachary with unfamiliar words and puzzling expressions. Yet, no matter how intimate their bodily explorations, no matter how much they indulged their appetite for each other, there remained certain matters of decorum on which she would not yield. Even when the organ that she had nicknamed the Bohordus Sepoy was entrenched within her, its master and commander remained Mr. Reed, the mystery. And she was never anything but Mrs. Burnham, the BB of Bethel. Once, when her shock was coming on, as she liked to say, he felt the onset of her tremors and cried out to urge her on, Oh, spend, Cathy, spend! Don't stint yourself! No sooner had the syllables left his mouth than she froze, her shock forgotten. What? What was that you called me? Cathy! No, my, no, my dear, no, she cried twitching her hips in such a way as to abruptly unbivouac the sepoy. I am and I must remain Mrs. Burnham to you, and you must ever remain Mr. Reed to me. If we ever permit ourselves to lapse into Zach's and Cathy's in private, then you may be sure that our tongues will ambush us one day when we are in company. In just such a way was poor Julia Fairley found to be luchering with her groom. For who has ever known a Saiz to call his memsahib Julie, as the wretched Ulu was heard to do one day? as he was helping her into the saddle. And so was it revealed that much of their riding and saddling was done without horses. <laughs> and in no time at all, poor Julia was packed off to Dulali, and all because she'd al allowed that halal core of a saiz to be too free with two syllables. No, dear, no, it, it just will not hoga. Mrs. Burnham and Mr. Reed we are, and so we must remain. If Zachary bowed to her in this matter, it wasn't only because he accepted her reasoning. It was also because there was something startlingly sensuous about hearing her moan after the passing of her shok. Oh, Mr. Reed, Mr. Reed, you have made a jelly bee of your poor Mrs. Burnham. <laughs> the invocation of a married name was a reminder that theirs were stolen, adulterous pleasures, which meant that inhibition was meaningless and restraint absurd. So deadly was the seriousness of their crime that it could only be faced by frivolity as when she would cry with a playful tug, it's my turn now to bajao your ganta. <laughs> she deployed these strings of words with the skill of an expert angler, 
teasing, mocking, and egging him on to further advances in the art of the pakrao. Oh, Mr. Reed, I do not doubt that it is a joy to be a launder of your age with the lati always ready to be lagaud. <laughs> and the dumpoke is certainly a fine thing not to be scorned. But you know, my dear mystery, a plain old-fashioned stew can always be improved by an occasional chutney. You've lost me, Mrs. Burnham, he mumbled. <laughs> oh, have you never heard of chartering, then? You mean like chartering a boat? No, you silly green, gif uh, green griffin, she laughed. In India, chartering is what you do with this. Here she reached between his lips and pinched the tip of his tongue. Your jib. Thus began a new set of explorations in which he was soon revealed to be a complete novice, blundering about with all the aptitude of a luckabog. Oh, no, my dear, no, you're not chewing on a chichki, and nor are you angling for a cock-up. Making a chutney, dear, is not a blood sport. Her caprices made him long to please her, and the mixture of severity and tenderness with which she treated him was far more rousing to him than words of love would have been. On the night when his experiments in chartering finally succeeded in bringing on her shook, his heart swelled with pride to hear her say, It is a wonder to me, my dear, how quickly you have mastered the mystery of the gamahush. Her teasing enchanted him, and if he was bewildered by her refusal to take him seriously, he was also captivated by it. He took it for granted that she possessed boundless experience in the amorous arts and considered it fitting that he should be treated as a neophyte. Yet there was a certain innocence about her too, and sometimes when she was exploring his body, she would betray an ingenuousness that startled him. One night, when she was toying with the sleeping Bohorder and exclaiming over its docile charms, he grew impatient. Oh, come now, Mrs. Burnham, you're a married woman and have given birth to a child. Surely this is not the first time you've handled a... Her hand was on his mouth before he could say the word. No, dear, no, she said. We will have none of those vulgarisms here. A woman may be bawdy with a woman and a man with men, but never the one with the other. But why not, he, demand, he demanded. Why should we not use the words that others use? Why shouldn't we speak of things by their accustomed names, as all people do? Her riposte was swift and unerring. That is exactly why, my dear Mr. Reed, because all people do it, and we are not all people. We are you and I. No one is like us, and nor are we like them. Why should we borrow words from others when we can use our own? Now, the, <clears throat> the next bit I'm going to read you is about uh, uh, perhaps the principal character in this book. His name is Havildar Kesri Singh. He's the brother of Diti uh, from Sea of Poppies. And Havildar Kesri Singh is, uh, you know, he's in the Bengal Native Infantry. He's, uh, uh, he's a sergeant, really. Um, and uh, he leads the, uh, a, a small company of soldiers, of sepoys. Uh, uh, I, I, anyway, I, I think it will become apparent in this. Uh, he, reads, uh, he leads uh, the Bengal Volunteers, which is a company of about, a, you know, it, there were about 200 soldiers, two companies of troops. They actually fought in the First Opium War. So this bit is from when Havildar Kesri Singh arrives in Fort William in Calcutta. Uh, when, the, uh, when the expeditionary force was being put together. It was not till late February that some of the expedition's British soldiers began to arrive in Fort William. One battalion of the 26th, known as the Cameronian, and another battalion from Her Majesty's 49th Regiment. Together with the two companies of Bengal volunteers, the total strength of the force assembled in Calcutta now came to a little over a thousand men. To Kesri, this seemed a paltry number with which to launch an invasion of a country like China. 
He was glad to be told by Captain Mee that the force was to be strengthened by a battalion from the 18th Royal uh, Irish Regiment, which was now stationed in Ceylon, as well as a small detachment of Royal Marines. But the single largest contingent was to be contributed by the 37th Madras Native Infantry Regiment. More than a thousand sepoys and a sizable number of sappers, miners, and engineers. In total, the force would consist of about 4,000 men. The Cameroonians were the first to arrive after a long march from Patna. They had campaigned around the subcontinent over a period of several years, and it soon became evident that the years in India had hardened them against Indians. They never missed an opportunity to hurl abuse at sepoys. Particularly offensive was a color sergeant by the name of Orr, who would unloose torrents of galleys for no good reason, cowardly kafirs, filthy niggers, black bastards, and so on. Kesri had to confront him several times, and on a couple of occasions, they almost came to blows. Fortunately, the Cameroonians were billeted at a fair distance from B Company, so it wasn't hard to stay out of their way. Kesri dreaded to think of what, of what might have happened if they had moved into the empty building that had joined the Bengal volunteers' barracks. Luckily for the Sepoys, the neighboring building was assigned to the 49th, who were a rowdy but easygoing lot. To, li to live next to them was an interesting novelty for the Sepoys. Even though they often campaigned with British units, they were rarely billeted in adjoining quarters. With their loud mouths and swaggering ways, the men of the 49th quickly transformed what had previously been a quiet corner of the fort. Every evening they would be off drinking, privates and NCOs alike, each in their own canteens. They would remain in them until the firing of the night gun, which was the signal for the closing of all the canteens on the fort's precincts. Nor was that the end of their revelries, for they, like many other British soldiers, were ingenious in finding ways to procure li illicit liquor. The sweepers and bhishtis who serviced their barracks made fortunes by smuggling liquor to them in all kinds of containers, tubes of hollowed-out bamboo and bladders of goatskin that they would conceal under their dhotis. At all times of the night, cries would break out, Where's that fucking beastie? I swear I'll beat the beast out of him if, he does, if I don't get my grog soon. The men of B Company watched these antics with bemused curiosity. Among sepoys, it had long been said that alcohol was the white soldier's secret weapon. It was what made him such a fearsome fighter. It was widely believed that this was the reason why British units were almost always chosen to lead charges in the battlefield, because the stiff doses of liquor that they were given beforehand made them almost suicidally reckless. Among sepoys, too, it was common to take intoxicants before a battle, this was something that soldiers had always done in Hindustan. But the sepoys' preferences were for hashish, ganja, bhang, and a form of opium known as majun. These drugs acted on the nerves to create a sense of calm and to make the body insensible to the exertion and fatigue of battle. Alcohol was different. It served as a fuel for the faculties of, of aggression, and it was common knowledge that it was precisely in order to nurture this fighting spirit that the British commanders paid so much attention to providing liquor to their men. A wise old subedar had once said to Kesri, it's alcohol that gives the sahibs their strength. That's why they drink it from morning to night. If ever they stop, they will become weak and go into decline. <laughs> and if a day comes when they start taking ganja like we do, then you can be sure that their empire will be finished. <laughs> okay, I'll stop there. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you, Amitabh. That Thank you, Mukhlega. Delightful. At least we know there's one award that you're not going to win, which is the Bad Sex Award. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully. So let's go straight into questions. And uh, raise your hands. I'll, I'll try and be as fair as possible. Um, and please keep them short. If you're not short, I will. If you're not brief, I will cut you off. So <clears throat> the lady here. Yeah, in the yellow jacket. Hello. Thank you for your reading. Um, in Sea of Poppies, you have a very large cast of characters, and I wondered how you kept the pace and kept the novel moving forward, even though you were dealing with so many different stories. Thank you. Um, you know, it, it seems like a very large ca cast of characters, but actually, if you look at the number of named characters in the book, uh, there are only, uh, I think, like uh, eight or nine, really. So, you know, one of the great difficulties... One of the reasons why uh, it's very, very difficult to write about, uh, say, something like uh, migration, you know, or, or about war, is that you really have to write about collectives. You know, you have to write about large groups of people. And it's impossible to get around that, you know, if you're going to write about these subjects that's so much, uh, that's so present. So in a sense, you have to constantly work at suggesting a collectivity without actually writing about a collectivity, because a collectivity is impossible to write about, you know. Uh, so that's really the sort of um, difficulty that you face when you take on a subject like this. Thank you. Thank you uh, for your enlightening um, talk. Um, I have a, you've written a lot on um, East India, undivided India, basically the East side. You've written a lot on Burma. Uh, in the glass palace, uh, Sundarbans and the Hungry Tide. Um, I'm interested to know to what extent has your upbringing in Bangladesh and in East India been a motivation to write about these regions in particular? Oh, uh, it's been absolutely fundamental. My, you know, the fact that I'm a Bengali, that I was brought up where I was, I mean, these things have been uh, completely central to my uh, career as a writer, you know. Um, uh, I think all my books uh, somehow circle around the Bay of Bengal. You know, the Bay of Bengal is really at the heart of it. Uh, and I'm not the only person who says that. Uh, Sunil Amrit, who's written this wonderful, he's a historian, written a wonderful book about the Bay of Bengal, uh, says so too in his book, in fact. So yes, uh, uh, you know, it's been completely central to my work. Uh, you know, uh, Burma, India, and so on, yes. <coughs> yeah, definitely. After you, the lady behind here. Yeah? Okay, so let's talk. Thank you. Um, is this on? Yeah, it is. Um, one of the things I'm so impressed by in your writing is the sense of space and flows. And as you say about the Bay of Bengal, you get a sense of that area as an integrated imperial system, which from something that studies Southeast Asia as a, as a unit, is a very interesting way of looking at it. So what I wondered is, uh, did you start by, th by trying to give a historical account of a war, or do you start by thinking about flows and thinking about how do you dramatize that? So what, what role are flows and spaces in your creative process? Where do they come in? <laughs> That's an interesting question. You know, uh, novels don't work like that. <laughs> you know? Uh, you don't really think of the space first. Uh, novels are about people, you know, and uh, characters come first. And it's really in following your characters that you sort of create the spaces around them. You know, 
Uh, and for me, uh, certainly uh, in, this, uh, in this book, I wanted to write... I think of these books as being books about departures, you know, people traveling from one place to another. So uh, uh, the whole trilogy really began with me, uh, began for me with uh, uh, Diti, who's a central character in Sea of Poppies, and her departure from India to travel to Mauritius, you know. So I think, uh, I think because it's a book about departures, in that sense, uh, it would overlap with, your, uh, 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 with the idea of flow as you've used it. So in that, uh, over there, I, I, I can certainly see a certain overlap. But it doesn't begin by planning it, like, uh, planning it uh, as such. I mean, now, in a sense, I can see that what really happens in this book is really about the Indian Ocean, mm-hmm. you, know, the, uh, you know, the entire sort of circuit of the Indian Ocean. But that was certainly not how it began. <laughs> It's been a recurring theme. I mean, even in an antique land, and yes. it's sort of looking west, but that is too about flows, isn't it? So I suppose it is a recurring. It's uh, yes, uh, exactly. But you know, I think that that's because my whole life has been about departure yes. and about flows. You know, uh, you know, my family. Uh, we are from. Uh, uh, we were originally from Bangladesh. Uh, we are from a district that's right next to what is today's Dhaka. And I remember going once with my father to look for our ancestral village. And of course, uh, when we got there, it wasn't there. A river was flowing over it. And my father always, uh, always told me that what happened was that in 1850, in the early 1850s, um, a river changed course, which happens all the time, you know. And it sort of uh, obliterated this village. And my ancestors then began to travel you know, so they uh, then moved from there to Bihar. Some of them moved to, uh, to Burma. So in a sense, you could say that, you know, when I look back on my family's past, it's all about these departures, you know. Uh, you could say that, in a way, we were the first, uh, among the first ecological refugees. <laughs> well, I hope we'll talk about climate change, which you uh, talked about uh, recently. But the lady over there, and then we'll have the person over here. Uh, you've used the vernacular very effectively in your books. Uh, that must have been quite hard, actually, going back to study it, because uh, how did you, can you just describe a little bit about how you went about it and what prompted the use of it and, you know, how you studied it? And to be consistent also across the book must have been quite hard. <laughs> uh, actually, it was really, really fun. Uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, that part of it. Uh, you know, I, I grew up, as, as many Indians do, in a sort of multilingual kind of world. You know, what, in India, we really have this thing called heteroglossia, which I would call hyperglossia, you know, which is that all of us have to exist in many different languages at the same time. It's impossible to make a life in India in just one register of language. You know? You're constantly having to sort of deal with many languages. So in my head, it's always like that. You know? There are words mixed up with each other. You know? But what became interesting for me, uh, and actually this is... A, a very small uh, moment of anthropology in my work. When I was, uh, when I was writing my, my DPhil, I would occasionally sort of uh, italicize words, you know, words like, uh, let's say, uh, namaz or masjid, you know, uh, masjid meaning uh, mosque and namaz meaning uh, Muslim prayers and so on. And my supervisor once said to me, he said, uh, you know, why are you italicizing these? And I said, oh, well, because they're not uh, English words. And he says, under what principle do you say they're not English words? Because they're in the Oxford English Dictionary. <laughs> you know, and of course they are. 
You know, actually, uh, it's pretty hard to find uh, a commonly used Hindustani word which is not in the longer Oxford English Dictionary. It's an extraordinary thing, but it's true. You know, and so many Bengali words, so many uh, Tamil, Malayalam words. And, uh, uh, you know, <coughs> early 19th century English, especially as spoken by English people uh, in India, was clearly not uh, standard English. It was something else. Because we know that when those people came back to, Eng uh, to England, people here couldn't understand them. You know, they would laugh at them and say that they were nabobs. And, you know, their language had to be sort of deciphered, you know. So what did they speak? And I think it's, this question really interests me. And if you look for, if you look for clues to it, uh, take the Dutch in Java, you know, who are you know, colonists of about the same sort of vintage. Uh, the Dutch in Java uh, you know, would lose uh, Dutch as a first language uh, within one generation. You know, and I think this may have happened to a few uh, English people, that English was for them a learned language. You know, because uh, so many of them were brought up by Indian ayahs and servants and so on. So they learned Hindustani very, very early, even before they learned English. Uh, Rudyard Kipling famously didn't speak any English till he was six years old. You know? So uh, what was the language that they spoke? You know? And I feel that it's actually possible to use certain kinds of English dictionaries to look back into that. You know? Uh, so, say, Hobson Jobson is one. Uh, the OED is another wonderful guide you know, to uh, lost usages of English. But there are actually two or three other uh, dictionaries of Kant, and uh, you know, there's one called um, English, the vulgar tongue, and so on. You know, uh, so it's interesting that these dictionaries of slang and Kant are actually much older than the Oxford English Dictionary. And what's curious also is that you know, <coughs> we think of... Uh, all the Indian influences coming into English from India. But actually, a lot of the Indic influences on English came through gypsy language uh, in, uh, uh, right here. So for example, Pawnee, uh, you know, I, that came through gypsy uh, into English uh, you know, in, the, in the 17th and 16th centuries. You know? Similarly, Rai, you know, <laughs> which here got spelled R-Y-E. Rai is India, uh, is uh, Hindustani for gentleman. You know? And uh, some of you may remember George Borrow wrote a famous book about gypsies called Romani Rai. Uh, so, you know, there are, it, from a multiplicity uh, of sources, you know, these, uh, these influences come into English. And I would say that one of, the <coughs> one of the real paradoxes of English as a global language is that it's in this period of globalization that in English has actually grown narrower, you know. 19th century English, I think, was much more sort of broad in its influences. But what's interesting also is that, you know, in English, even these standardization proje uh, projects, like, for example, the Webster's Dictionary, Oxford English Dictionary, and so on, have not been able to kill off uh, all the Asian and African influences. Uh, they live on a slang, you know. So I, I always tell my uh, children who... <laughs> constantly call me dude. I say, <laughs> you know, keep that, to annoy them, I say, why are you using this 18th century African word? <laughs> and it's so interesting, you know, when we think of American self-description, you know, as can-do people, that's just straight borrowed from Cantonese. You know? <clears throat> yeah, in the front row. And then uh, this gentleman at the back in the middle. Hi. I've read 
most nearly all of your books and I've introduced them to my sister who lives in Trinidad and Tobago. So we are all, our ancestors were transported to Trinidad and Tobago. So this is a question by proxy. She wants me to ask you, how is it you flesh out the characters in your book? What do you draw on? Because so, they're so fully formed people that we identify and, and as uh, you said, we want to know what's happened to them and uh, we're going to miss them when, when, the, when we read the last book. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. That's a lovely question. Uh, you know, as I said, uh, you know, for me, a character like Diti, for example, I, ha I started with a very vivid sense of her, really. I mean, it was just like literally she appeared uh, in a kind of vision, you know, and that does happen sometimes. So I started with this very, very vivid sense of her. But, you know, apart from that, especially when you're writing a historical novel, what's really interesting is to see, is to try and think of the ways that people then were different from us, you know? And that's one of the, one of the really interesting things about doing historical research. Uh, on, the, on the indenture, it's also what makes writing about the Indian past so very difficult, you know? Because, you know, if you consider from about 1835 to, 19, uh, to, to the 1920s, literally millions and millions of Indians left, uh, uh, you know, India to go to, uh, you know, to various places around the world. You know, there is not a single memoir written by an indentured worker uh, in the 19th century. Not one. The earliest memoir we get is actually uh, a 20th century memoir. It's astonishing mainly because, uh, you know, by the late 18th century, African slaves uh, were producing slave memoirs. You know, they were producing slave narratives, and we have a number of them, you know. But the Indian indentured and the Chinese indentured, as far as I know, two of the huge diasporas of the world, produced nothing. Uh, no recording of their, of their past. And we can't say it was because of illiteracy, because many of them were from castes uh, that were literate castes. The same issue arises in relation to Indian soldiers. You know, between, uh, between the 1760s, when uh, England uh, first started recruiting Indian sepoys, and 1914, uh, literally tens of millions of Indians served as sepoys, you know, fought all of uh, Britain's colonial wars in Asia and so on. Do you know how many memoirs we possess of the, of, uh, the sepoys? It's one. And even that is apocryphal. You know, it's said to have been dictated to, a, 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 to an English officer. So uh, this, this is, the, you know, this is the great sort of paradox of India. And it's not that, uh, you know, it's not that Indians are uninterested in narration. Mm. I mean, a, a narration is the national project of India, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but there's self-narration, isn't there? And there's biography making, which is a different genre than to talk about things that are not yourself. Whatever it is, you know, uh, storytelling is so much, as it were, the, uh, the Indian cultural sure. project. You know, I mean, that's that been true since, uh, since ancient times. And it's true again after, the, after independence, you know, uh, with uh, Bollywood, etc., and now with this enormous sort of um, upwelling of uh, writing that you see. But it was in this period, really, uh, that's the interesting thing about this whole colonial period, uh, this withdrawal of the Indian voice. And it was literally a withdrawal. It was a refusal. You know, and uh, that's what we get in uh, Hind Swaraj when Gandhi says, you know, we do not want to narrate our history in, in, in European terms. You know, 
that is not the history that we want. But for, say, someone working as a historical novelist, this is the sort of great challenge that you're posed. I mean, how do you try to reconstruct these experiences? So with the indenture, for example, actually, uh, you know, there are some, some wonderful historians who've been writing about it. Uh, <coughs> there's Claire Alexander, there's Marina Carter, you know, who, uh, you know, they put together letters, etc. little scraplets, you know, from which we try to investigate this past. But I also spent time at the, you know, the Mahatma Gandhi archive uh, in Mauritius, and that was so interesting, because I worked with the actual emigration certificates, and I discovered something which astonished me, and I've never seen it commented on in the sources. You know, on the emigration certificate, they write down on one side, it's a little sort of printed certificate, on one side you write down the name, the caste, height, weight, etc. Then I, uh, that's all in English. Then I discovered that on the verso, and I got used to looking at versos of papers when I was working on Ben Yiju, you know. And I, when you look at the verso, you discover that there's notation in Bengali. So the, the clerk who was filling all this stuff in, were, they were adding notations at the back in, uh, in Bangla. And that's, you know, it's from these strange sort of mm. traces, uh, you know. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, it's exactly that the text always has these traces, you know. So that's really how you have to sort of try in some way to, to recover, as it were, the Indian subject, who is actually constantly withdrawing. Thank you. Okay, let's take another question. When I look towards you, please put up <coughs> your hand if I haven't noticed you yet. So um, I know there's somebody waiting here. Maybe we'll go here next after the <coughs> Yeah, thanks. Um, so this question is connected to what you were discussing. In this process of reconstructing history from below kind of a process, it's, I'm always kind of conflicted while reading your work. I mean, on one, one side there's kind of a notion of agency that is clearly visible. But then is it just the intimacy that anthropology provides? Because then I feel betrayed when the tides of history kind of, you know, sweep away all the agency and the individual characters got, get caught up in history. So I'm just curious how you think of it. Uh, again, the reason I write novels rather than uh, history or anthropology is precisely because of this, because I'm interested in people, mm. you know. And the way I think of it in terms of history is that, you know, history is like a great river, you know. Uh, we, all have to, we all have to swim in that water. But we are really like fish. Each of us can choose an ecosystem within the river, and we can choose the direction that we, uh, that we swim in. You know, I mean, uh, even uh, at the darkest moments, uh, people find uh, things to take solace in. They find, uh, they find la life and laughter and love. I mean, that never stops. Mm. The opium trade was a huge part of the um, EIC's um, revenues. I think it was about seventh of the revenue at one stage. Um, and you said um, that it's still something that isn't discussed so much in terms of the um, East India Company, um, both on the European side and on the Indian side. Um, and I wondered why, I mean, before you started writing your trilogy, obviously, um, and I wondered why you thought that was. Uh, why is opium not discussed? Discussed, yeah. Uh, you know, the, it's not that nothing is written about it, well, because a fair much. amount... Because when you think about something like, say, Indigo, you know, yes. you've got deal mit, you know, you've got Mithras, um, you think about, you know, the, the exploitation of the riots, you have a lot of fiction. Not, I'm not just talking about history, I'm talking about <coughs> fiction as well. But why doesn't it, when it was such an integral part of the East India Company's revenues and... Uh, 
rationale for existing, it has a relatively low, um, um, can't think of the right word, you know. Um, Visibility. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, George Orwell's father was an opium agent. Uh, you know, that's why he was born in Bihar. Uh, it's such a strange thing. Uh, it's really, really puzzling. I mean, I have friends, uh, you know, who are historians, uh, who've written about sugarcane, about cotton. But, you know, opium was the foundation of the colonial economy. And there's no, not a single uh, detailed study of opium uh, across, uh, you know, across India. And there are firms still um, like um, uh, Jardine Matheson. Yeah, Jardine Matheson. Don't mention opium at all, and yet they were based on, mm. you know, opium. Uh, the largest employer in Britain, uh, they made their uh, fortune uh, in the China trade, the initial uh, Tatas. <laughs> you know, uh, so uh, what can you say? Um, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a systematic suppression of yeah. it. You know, Jardine Matheson, uh, if you, uh, uh, journalists in Hong Kong uh, have told me that if you refer to their past as opium traders, you can be sure you're going to get a call from them. <laughs> you know, uh, the greatest Indian opium trading family, the, uh, the Gigi Boy, uh, uh, no, uh, yeah, uh, so Jamshedji Gigi Boy, the Gigi Boy family, uh, to this day, they, uh, they get very upset uh, to see this aspect mentioned. And yet, I mean, it's everywhere in the sources, you know. So there is certainly a sort of systematic suppression of it. And I think it also, you know, the people who knew about it, say, for example, Rabindranath Tagore, whose grandfather was, uh, again, a great opium trader, you know. Uh, Tagore was absolutely merciless in his denunciations of the opium trade. He constantly wrote about it. I mean, he called it the greatest evil. It's England's dagger pointed into the heart of China. Uh, he wrote about it endlessly. Dadabhai Nauroji, again, spoke about opium a lot, uh, you know. So, you know, there are figures within the early, uh, uh, you know, uh, turn-of-the-century figures who were very, very uh, eloquent about opium. But uh, I think somehow in the course of Gandhianism, Indians somehow became converted to a worldview where they were all about virtue, you know, and uh, it was not about mind-bending drugs and that kind of thing. <laughs> and it's very hard for Indians, I think, to accept, uh, you know, of, uh, of their role in this. As for Britain, I mean, I don't think any uh, Englishman to this day really wants to admit that theirs was the first narco state, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, for that matter, uh, you know, uh, uh, you'll find it. Americans never have never really acknowledged the the depth of their involvement uh, in the opium trade. You know, so many of the most important uh, American families uh, really got their start in opium. In fact, almost without exception, you could say. You know, uh, all those people you call Boston Brahmins, they were actually opium traders. Uh, for example, you know, where did Franklin Delano Roosevelt's money come from? came from his uh, grandfather, Andrew Delano, who was one of the biggest opium traders in the world. The Calvin Coolidge family made their money in opium. Brown University is endowed with opium. <laughs> uh, the Peabody Museums are endowed with opium money. You know, uh, you know almost any educational institution in, uh, in the eastern United States, uh, there's a fair amount of opium money there. And, uh, you know, it's so... How does this narrative get so completely suppressed? You have to wonder. And is it in today's, you know, you've talked about this elsewhere, the complete neighborly incommunication between India and China, the lack of understanding that exists across the two countries. Um, 
is so mediated by Britain and the opium trade. Yeah. And it's that, in fact, opium has, would you say, would you push it that far, that this suppression of the story, in fact, creates that incommunication in a sense? So yes, I mean, absolutely. I think it's India's uh, inability to acknowledge, uh, you know, uh, what happened, really, yeah. in this period. And, uh, you know, actually the strange thing about the British colonial economy uh, in India is that, you know, before British colonialism, uh, the Indian economy was uh, multidirectional. You know, uh, India was trading with uh, uh, with East Africa, with the Middle East, with Southeast Asia, uh, you know, with China as well. So the trade was happening in many directions. What happened under the under the colonial economy is that India's economy became reoriented entirely to China. You know, yeah. they turned the whole economy around. So it was all opium, cotton, etc., all going to China, and you know, China also became the conduit of, uh, as it were, uh, you know. Uh, cycling money back, uh, you know, uh, 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 to England. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> I think both India and China in this period actually are formative of mm. each other. Mm. And not just in economic terms, also culturally, so much came into India in an un unacknowledged sense, you know. I mean, I'm sure your mother got married in a Banarasi sari. Certainly my mother got married I in did. a Banarasi sari. There you are. <laughs> my, my wife got married to me in a Banarasi sari. <laughs> Uh, but if you think, you know, those saris are actually called Tanchoi saris. Mm. And the reason they're called Tanchoi is because three brothers went from Gujarat. Uh, uh, they were sent by Jamsedji Jijibar. They were sent uh, to work with a master weaver, a Chinese master weaver called Tan. God. You know, and then they came back to... Uh, uh, you know, I, I could go on about this forever. Actually, I'm writing a little yeah. book about it. Oh, but great. <laughs> <laughs> we need that. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, the Indian visual landscape, mm. even though we don't actually find ways of acknowledging it, was completely, uh, uh, was very powerfully influenced by China. And that's true also of England. Uh, you know, one day I was sitting in a, uh, you know, at Wolfson College uh, uh, in Oxford. Uh, you know, it was in Hermione Lee's study. And I was looking out of a window at this, uh, at this beautiful landscape at the back, you know, with a little, uh, with a little river and weeping willows, and suddenly it struck me, this is actually a Chinese landscape. So much of the English garden landscape is actually completely borrowed uh, from China, you know. Half the English flowers, uh, you know, come through the great botanical exchange with China, you know, in the 19th century. So, you know, it's such a, it's such a sort of complex set of... Uh, you know, interactions that happen. But in today's time, it seems to me, it's great that you're writing a book about this because because the world's attention is on India and China, and it's astonishing the lack of acknowledgement <coughs> of the story, the lack of awareness and information could really change the terms of engagement so significantly. So let's hope we can... Yes, I, 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 I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think the real problem with India uh, in relation to China is that, look, I mean... Problems exist between neighbors, and they will always exist because, you know, China is an assertive state. India is also a fairly querulous state in many ways. So you can see why problems would exist. But India's relationship with China is not normal. It's a pathological relationship. Because, you know, I think of myself growing up uh, in India, you know. Uh, literally, you know, and I'm a big reader. I'm a curious person. I like to know about the world. I've always taught myself about the world. Yet, until I began writing the Ibis Trilogy, I couldn't have told you where Hangzhou is. I, yeah, I wouldn't have yeah. been able to tell you where, where the Fuzhou is. And yet, I, I know where Quito is. I know where, you know, La Paz is. I mean, why? It's just right across the border. 
you know it's so yeah. strange i mean that's what makes you realize that mm. between us there is a sort of himalaya of the imagination yeah you know yeah i think we'll have we have time for just one more question where's louise she's keeping time there's one back there and one up here yeah so let's so ta- let's do, take them together these, yeah yes. so this lady here in the and the gentleman at the back there. And I'm really sorry if anyone else is desperate to ask a question, but next time. I, uh, I have been always intrigued by the fact that you bring uh, people from different strata of society and cultures and put them in a situation where they can't escape and you have to identify with basic human emotions like uh, the Bengal Zamindar and the Chinese prisoner. So uh, same with Hungry Tribe, where a researcher comes in contact with a boatsman. Is that a, this is a conscious effort to send out a message or... Like, why do you put <laughs> claustrophobia? Very different, like, uh, something that I wouldn't uh, imagine in my head. Like, being all I mean, the, uh, talking to a Chinese prisoner and interacting and identifying the basic emotions and wishing I had a life like that. Parts of things, like, <laughs> I mean, uh, like the freedom that he has or something. Is that a conscious something Thank that you. you put up? Or? Thank you. We'll take another sure. question and then we can answer them together. <laughs> Um, what I really liked about your books, and I've been reading them for a long time since Delhi University, is the way in which there's a lot of complexity and in terms of identity and identifying with characters that always resists being captured in a, in a certain way or a certain frame. But, and to pick up on one of the questions that you were answering today, um, when you talked about the Indian subject, um, it kind of like, reduced all that complexity. So I just wanted to kind of know where you stand in this, you know, this national project, because you have this whole recovering of small voices kind of thing, the subaltern studies kind of thing happening in your books, but you're also, you know, and it's it's kind of complicated, especially in India now, where you're, where we're trying to trace, you know, this huge Indian past that kind of doesn't exist because India is what the British made it, rather than, you know, how we see it in into the past. So just your opinions and your point of view, I guess. Uh, I'll answer that part first. (laughs) Uh, You know, I have to say that uh, I am not a a theoretically-minded person, and that's why I'm a novelist rather than, say, a historian or or an anthropologist. Uh, So I feel uh, really unable to answer that, uh, to address that, because uh, the reason I write novels is because I like to think of writing about characters, you know, and trying to imagine the worlds that they're in. And, you know, that's, that's basically what I do. So the, 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 this, the first question about uh, small spaces, you know, I'll, I'm very drawn to, uh, to nautical fiction. And the reason for that is that uh, it gives you all the classical unities, you know, unities of time, space, action. And <coughs> moreover... Ships were really like that, yeah. you know? I mean, ships did really bring together people from the most unlikely circumstances. If you look at a crew list of a 19th century ship, it's unbelievable how diverse they were, you know? And, uh, you know, the only person who really captures this uh, very well is uh, Herman Melville. You know, the, uh, in the 40th chapter of Moby Dick, it's like, you know, you suddenly realize that, uh, you know, this small uh, Nantucket uh, whaling ship actually has something like 17 nationalities on board, including Parsis. Uh, he makes one of the harpooners, uh, uh, par- he says that they're Parsis, you know, which is so unlikely. <laughs> 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 but there you are. 
Okay, so I think if there are no burning questions, I think we'll just take this opportunity to say thank you very thank much. You, thank you, Mukulika. Thank you. Thank you.